So I don't know if in the 1950s and 60s this station had a public address system, but if it did, you might have heard train number, Northern Pacific train number 26, North Coast Limit for Minneapolis, St. Paul, and Chicago. Departing in five minutes, stopping at Forsyth, Miles City, Glendive, Dickinson, Mandan, Bismarck, Jamestown, Valley City, Fargo, Staples, Minneapolis, St. Paul, and points to Chicago. <laughs> so I want to start today with a, a feature of uh, railway stations that's in this building. On most railway stations, on the facade facing the tracks, was a, a windowed bay uh, sticking out from the main wall. And the purpose of that windowed bay was that's where the telegraph operator did his or her work. They sat at a desk with a uh, telegraph key, a telephone, and all sorts of paperwork, and from that a windowed bay, they could look out, but they could also look to both sides, down the track, to look at tra uh, oncoming trains and signals. And uh, one of the features of, on the desk was a sounder that clicked out the Morse code. And so I have two, uh, read, or two short readings about telegraphers. The first is from Dan Cushman, a Montana writer who as a young boy in Zurich on the High Line in 1917 described just how quiet it could be in Zurich. It was just a regular peaceful day, not a thing stirring. If a dog barked away, way out past the cemetery, the whole town would hear it. It was so quiet, Hutchinger, the depot agent, can swing the telegraph arm to the open window and then go and sit in the privy 50 yards away and be able to read any message that clicked in on the sounder. <laughs> so how many of you in the 19, late 50s and 60s watched Huntley-Brinkley Report? <clears throat> So many of you probably know that he was a native of Montana, born in a Northern Pacific Railway station in Cardwell and the living quarters uh, provided for the ancient telegrapher, that was his father, and that he grew up uh, in various stations as his father built seniority and could move to larger towns. When uh, Huntley, Chet Huntley was in high school in the late 1920s, he was, his father was stationed in Whitehall, just be, uh, east of, little east of Butte and Homestake Pass. And he writes in his memoir that was published in, the 19, uh, in 1968 about uh, one, of the one of the things he learned from his father's telegraphy. My first experience in mass communication came as a result of dad's trade as a telegrapher. On the days of a World Series game, if it were Saturday or Sunday and company telegraph traffic was slow, Dad would write down the play-by-play -play reports as they came over the wire. A cluster of people would gather in the waiting room of the station and I would bellow through the ticket window the play-by-play -play action of the game. So that's an opening to uh, briefly, I'm gonna talk a little bit about the book, not much, and what I'm mostly gonna talk about is railways, uh, the station and trains in the Billings and Laurel area but just a little bit about the book. It is not a book about the early days of the railroad, the, the survey, the construction, the political fights, the, the 
huge construction crews, often of immigrants, the creation of towns. There are many books about that, and there are actually two sessions on Saturday morning to that era in Billings and Livingston. Rather, it's about generally from the 1890s to the 1920s, when the railway lines were mostly established, regular scheduled service had long been in business, people were familiar with the regular trains, the, the uh, stations had been built and they began to have a worn look. And it's about how the railroads in that first part of the 20th century were an integral part of people's lives, of communities' lives. Obviously for the people who rode the trains, for the people who went to the stations to meet people, or drop off people, but even for people who sometimes never rode the trains, but the trains, the, the, the sound, the smoke, the, the workers on the railroad were part of the community. And so uh, there's, a lot, what, uh, there's a lot of memoir in the book, from memoirs, autobiography, and fiction, fictional autobiography, and more, and there's even, uh, uh, things from country music songs, uh, uh, one country music song by Texan Guy Clark, and The Music Man as well, because uh, they often were looking back to a time when railroads were more important. Many of the memoirs that are uh, quoted in the book were written decades after the fact. They were written by, uh, about childhood times by people who were in their 50s, 60s, or 70s. And so sometimes the memory uh, of a specific details, of specific aspects, may not be accurate, but uh, often they carry the, the, the meaning, the impressions, the, uh, the, the sensory aspect of railroads. An example of one, of one uh, memoir excerpt that turns out not to be accurate, but it's engaging, is from Ivan Doig, This House of Sky. In that book, he, when his family moves his, uh, to Ringling, he introduces the town of Ringling and describes its setting, its size, and more. He, and then he writes about the railroad in Ringling. Through, exactly through the middle of town, the railroad tracks which glinted and fled instantly in both directions. Mornings, an eastbound passenger train tornadoed through, then came, uh, then came one tearing westward. Afternoons, as people said, it was the same, except opposite. Time of day that the two trains came through at the same time. 
The other pair of trains were over 12 hours apart. So I, I think that that's an aspect. People who study memoirs or study autobiographies and uh, have presumably explored this, but it was something that I became more familiar with writing the book. For the most part, I, reported, or I quoted and introduced the excerpts as the author intended and leave it to the reader to uh, accept or be skeptical. Another aspect of the book that I would point out is that I wrote the captions for the book uh, looking at digital photos on a huge computer screen. And I found details in there that are often mentioned in the captions. The photos are much smaller in the book, but if there's a photo that really intrigues you, it's worth pulling out a magnifying glass. The detail in the digital photos and in the printing is excellent. And that you can see very small features in there that you wouldn't guess uh, just from looking at the photos. So I do recommend using a magnifying glass if, if you are intrigued by a photo. Billings. Billings is, it's a redundancy to say Billings was a railroad town. In some ways it still is a railroad town. It has many features of a railroad town and we'll be learning more about that on Saturday. I want to just quickly run over some of the features, geographical and otherwise, uh, for Billings and Laurel that make this in some ways not just a railroad center in terms of employment and activity, for Montana, but perhaps for the Northern Plains between the Cascades and the Missouri River. Obviously, there's many different numerical ways to uh, assess that, but um, I'll offer some of those. One is the name of Billings. It's named, it was named in 1882 for the president, Frederick Billings, who had just retired as president a year earlier. Two, it's street grid, like many towns established after, right after the creation of a railway line. Its uh, streets are aligned not in the standard north-south, east-west in the historic area. They're aligned perpendicular and parallel to the railway tracks. Again, a common feature for many towns, uh, either platted separately or in this case by a, a town site company affiliated with the railroad. And actually there were, were two rail corridors in Billings. There's the rail corridor that we're part of here, but there was another rail corridor on the alignment of Fifth Street North, about five blocks north of us. I went up there earlier this afternoon. There's only one track left up there uh, serving various industries. There's a lot of spurs that have been out of use for a long time. But at one time, that was a, a significant railroad district on North Fifth. Uh, there was a switchyard, the Burlington Railroad had a large roundhouse right close to where the Department of Interior office building is now. The Great Northern had a freight house, there were many businesses with loading facilities along that. So there were actually two rail corridors in Bozeman. Bose, uh, Billings, Billings, I'm showing my roots, Billings. Uh, but, and the other thing was, Billings was a division point. It was one of those towns, eventually cities, of, located along the Northern Pacific at intervals of roughly 100 to 125 miles, 
where the railroad based its crews, the train crews that would work out and back over a period of a couple days. And in the early days, the locomotives would be changed every 100 to 125 miles. So there's a large roundhouse here where the uh, locomotives were inspected, serviced and maintained between runs. And this was also either the terminal or ending point for train crews as well. And uh, Billings and then eventually Laurel became one of the major railway junction areas of the Northern Plains. Uh, by 1914, there were five major rail lines running into the Billings-Laurel area. The first, the first, of course, was the Northern Pacific running east-west across southern Montana. Then the Burlington Route, a Chicago-based company, built a line from uh, Nebraska uh, through, up through Wyoming, through Sh Gillette and Sheridan, reached here in 1894. Uh, the Great Northern built a line from Great Falls down to here in uh, uh, to Moss, Maine, just outside of Laurel in 1909. And then in 1914, uh, the Burlington built another line into this area from Denver and Cheyenne up through Casper and Thermopolis uh, to Laurel. So at that time, there were lines radiated east-west, south, southeast, and northwest. And by, by 1914, when the last of these lines was uh, built here, they were all, all three of these railroads, Northern Pacific, Great Northern, and Burlington, were controlled by a single business syndicate. Uh, headed by James J. Hill, the founder and longtime president of the Great Northern, that, and they were called the Hill Lines. And in 1970, they would be merged into the Burlington, officially merged into Burlington Northern. But before then, especially um, in the early part of the 20th century, these three lines, the NP and GN, nominally or did compete, but they were actually owned or controlled by the same organization. And then the Burlington was acquired jointly both by the Northern Pacific and Great Northern. So there was this common ownership and common uh, business directorship. And one of the visions that Hill had was uh, there was already heavy east-west traffic on the Northern Pacific through here, but he envisioned north-south traffic running from even from Canada and the Canadian border north of Shelby down through, through Shelby and Great Falls to Laurel and then south through Wyoming into Denver and all the way down into Texas. And it would be a line that in a sense would follow the eastern edge of the Rockies, the western edge of the plains, a great north-south route from Canada to the Gulf of Mexico. And Laurel would be one of the crucial junction and switchyard uh, places on that line. I doubt that traffic ever uh, reached levels that Hill may have anticipated. Uh, much of the economy was not organized along that route, but it, but it remains important to this day. Um, if we're lucky, we might see a train with trailers and containers uh, that BNSF initiated a couple years ago that goes from Seattle to Dallas, or Fort Worth, Texas running through here, and it is, in one sense, fulfilling the vision of James Hill for Billings and Laurel as part of this north-south railway network. And so that, that junction function is important as well. To give you a sense of just how important the railways were in 1950, which was a lot of steam engines were still in use, they were very maintenance intent or labor intensive in operation and maintenance. In Yellowstone County, 
there were 1,280 railroaders, almost 1,300 railroaders, and almost and 440 of those were in Billings. Most of the remainder would be in Laurel. Of those numbers, about 3% of each of those numbers were women, 14 out of in Billings and 41 in the whole county. The number now of railroaders in the Billings Laurel area, employed by Montana Railing and BNSF, is about is about one quarter of that. In Octo late October of 1909, uh, the the fourth Dry Farming Congress of the United States or International Dry Farming met here in Billings. This was during the boom in dry farming, the idea of farming lands with. Uh, scanty precipitation without irrigation by uh, 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 alternate cropping and fallow of the land and special techniques. It was in a boom period. Uh, it was almost a, a cult in a way, dry farming. And they had these conferences and one was held here in Billings in late October of 1909. And the Billings uh, Gazette reported that hotels were filled, as well rooming houses, and the switchyards are filling with Pullman and private cars occupied by delegates and men of railroad and agricultural prominence. At the bottom of the first page of that day's newspaper, the bill, someone in Billings, perhaps the government or the, uh, the Chamber of Commerce list, listed 32 good things they had to say about Billings, about its prosperity, about its acti business activity, 32, nine of those were railroad related, and I'm gonna read uh, five of them. And they were arranged, the, the, these attributes were arranged in length of phrase, so they're not in any thematic order. So five of these attributes of Billings as a railroad town were large railroad repair shops, the largest cattle shipping point in Montana, it is the largest wool shipping point in the world, Ingomart would challenge that, 30 miles of trackage switches and turnouts in the railroad yards. It is on a direct line from Alberta, Canada to the Gulf of Mexico. And so uh, obviously in 1909, not only was Billings an active railroad center, but it was a, a crucial part of its identity as seen by the business community. So that's Billings and Laurel in a quick uh, nutshell. Uh, Laurel, of course, still is a big railroad town. The largest switchyard in Montana is there. There's a plant where they weld rail from 80-foot lengths into quarter-mile-long lengths and more. And it shows up. Today's sports page has top locos picking up speed. So Laurel is what? <laughs> Laurel is one of two high schools in Montana that has a railroad-themed mascot name, the other being Harloton on the abandoned Milwaukee line. They are the engineers. But it's great to have a, 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 mo, a, a mascot, that, locomotives, and if you've ever seen their team bus, they often come to Bozeman for state tournaments. It's an old intercity bus with a great big steam engine painted on, the, very stylized on the side. But it's also great when you can shorten that down to locos. So this building we're in here, uh, there, there's been no uh, scheduled passenger service in, in southern Montana, or in, and that would reach up to Great Falls, for almost 40 years. But in the five major cities of Montana that are on railroad main lines that had through traffic, in the early 20th century, there were 10 large stations built in Missoula, 
Great Falls, Helena, Butte, and Billings. And remarkably, given that it's for almost 40 years since the trains ran, only one of those stations has been demolished. On nine of the rest of the stations survived. Both of them in Missoula, both of them in Great Falls, all three of them in Butte. The, uh, the one that does not survive is the, was the Great Northern Station in Helena, where the Federal Reserve Branch Bank is now. So I think that's a remarkable survival rate for uh, these large urban stations, which are, of course, expensive to operate, expensive to heat, have all sorts of construction liabilities of roofs and walls and, uh, and veneers and more. So this was a union station. A union station is it's a familiar enough term. It's based, what it refers to is a single station or complex of buildings jointly owned and operated by two or more railroads. And even sometimes they were competing railroads. Uh, and the, but there was an advantage. Uh, stations even 100 years, 110 years ago were expensive to build, they were expensive to operate, they were uh, labor intensive in terms of the number of people required, and even competitors could benefit by sharing a same station as the Northern Pacific and Great Northern did in Seattle at King Street Station. So here in Billings, uh, the, the Northern Pacific had a station here, of course, from the beginning, uh, from 1882. They shared it with the Burlington when it, its first line arrived in 1894. And then, uh, but then by 1909, one is determined to build this station because the previous station, several blocks west of here, that long vanished, uh, was too small. And that, at that point, the Great Northern had built, completed its line to Laurel, so it would have three railroads sharing the station. And so a bit of trivia is this is the only three railroad union station between the Missouri River and the Cascade Mountains. So for whatever that's worth. It, uh, of course, has very stri uh, has striking architecture. It was not, uh, the Northern Pacific hired uh, two, uh, an architectural firm in St. Paul, Reed and Stem, to build many of their major stations, Seattle, Tacoma, Livingston, Missoula, Bismarck. But for this station, they actually uh, relied on architects employed in the office of the chief engineer in St. Paul. And so this was uh, designed by architects, but those directly employed by the Northern Pacific. And these were architects who would design everything from stations this large to a small station, perhaps, in Big Timber. And, uh, but it has aspects, if you've traveled along the Northern Pacific route, it has as architectural aspects, exterior aspects, that will remind you of other stations, especially are the parapets, the, the high walls uh, at the end of gable ends and at the end of the roof dormers. And so stations in, Yaco in Washington, Ellensburg, Yakima, Ritzville have the same feature, Sandpoint, Idaho, Detroit Lakes, Minnesota. So this has a very Northern Pacific look. It was a Union Station, the Northern Pacific, but was the major railroad in terms of number of trains, probably in terms of passengers passing through here. And it looks like a Northern Pacific Station. Inside this building were the whole range of functions and features and employees that were required to keep a station that had up to 20 trains a day, a day stopping here. 
So obviously there were ticket clerks in those four windows at the back of the room. There was, an, uh, there was a room for baggage, handling baggage farther, uh, farther east, and at the far end of the building was a room for handling express, the kind of business that FedEx and UPS do now. And at one point, the, the, the windows on the portion of the building with the express had steel grills over them. That's still true of the building in Bozeman, which the NP station, which is uh, empty right now. Uh, but if you, uh, I was walking out there this afternoon and you can see where the steel grills were punched into the brick and they put, they filled those holes with mortar. Uh, but there were steel grills because inside that express room was money and valuables. That's, that's how money traveled until the, probably into the 1950s. Uh, and so the express rooms uh, had, had those barred windows. There was a lunch room in the building just to the west here, also a news a newsstand in there as well. One thing that was not here was a large, uh, in the 100 years ago, were offices for administering the railroad. The, this section of railroad through Billings was administered by uh, division headquarters in three-story buildings, one in Livingston, now a museum, and one in Glendive, which is still occupied and used by BNSF Railway. Uh, after this building was built, uh, Northern Pacific uh, built a, a more recent office building at the east end of this, now occupied by the city offices. And in the, I think in the 70s, uh, Burlington Northern had a, a district or a, a regional office there. But in the 100 years ago, this was not the center of administration the way Glendive and Livingston were. So where could, if you, where could you go from this station in the heyday of its travel from uh, the 19-teens through the 1950s? You could, where could you go without changing train or changing cars? Well, of course, one of the, the, the main one would be, the main destinations would be at each end of the Northern Pacific and its Burlington connection. So to the west, you could go to Spokane, Seattle, Tacoma, and Portland directly. And to go heading east, you could go to Bismarck, Minneapolis, St. Paul, and Chicago. And, though, and you could reach those destinations for almost a century from Billings, from before this station was built in 1883 until 1979 when Amtrak stopped service through here. But you could also, to the 1950s and 60s, you could go to other places. You could, on the Great Northern, you could have to Great Falls, up to Shelby and Glacier Park without changing trains. But especially on the Burlington. On the Burlington, you could head south uh, uh, through uh, Thermopolis, Casper, Cheyenne, and Denver. Uh, and even more trains were offered on the route to the southeast through uh, Sheridan, Gillette, along the eastern edge of the Black Hills, through the sand hills of Nebraska, to Lincoln, Nebraska, Kansas City, and St. Louis. And so uh, there was quite a variety of destinations available. One of the features that was common 100 years ago throughout the United States were night trains. And these were trains between relative, cities relatively close together and th that might involve getting on a train at 10 at night and arriving at the destination about 7 in the morning. And for travelers, especially business travelers, they were transportation and lodging in the same train. You could get a sleeping car ticket on a train. 
You could leave one day, you could arrive the next morning having slept in a berth in a sleeping car and maybe caught an early breakfast in the dining car and do your business in the other town and then catch a night train back. Uh, this, these were mostly in more populous areas throughout the Midwest and East, Seattle and Portland and others. But in Montana, there weren't night trains. There wasn't the population, but there were options. So in 1913, if you're in Billings and you need to go to Helena for, say, political reasons, the legislature's in session, or there's something involved with the court, you could get on a sleeping car that would be parked on a stub track here in Billings. It might open up at 9 o'clock at night. You could check into that. You could check into the car. The porter would pull the bunk down and uh, make the bed, and you could crawl into bed. Or, uh, and then at 12.30, a train would pull in from the east if it was on time. A switch engine would take that sleeping car off the sidetrack, attach it to that train that just arrived, and then that train would take you through Logan to Helena. And then at Helena, another switch engine there would take that car off. And you didn't have, uh, you didn't have to sit with the, the coach passengers here until 12.30 for the train to arrive. You could crawl into bed at 9. And the same thing worked coming the other way. Uh, you could get on your sleeping car in Helena, say 9 or 10. The train there didn't stop till 3 o'clock in the morning, but you were asleep. And if you had a good switch engine crew, you might not wake up. And then the train would reach here at uh, 11 o'clock. The sleeping car would be dropped off and you could get off the train. And so that was an option. It, it was the equivalent of, I think, what is today called red-eye flights across the continent, only with a lot more comfort. And one thing about train times in Billings was, of course, that this was, for most, for, especially in the Northern Pacific, this was not a terminus. The trains started and ended in places like Seattle or Portland or Minneapolis, St. Paul or Chicago. And when they stopped at all sorts of intermediate points was not based on the convenience of people in those points. It was based on the convenience of people in those big cities. So some of the through trains through here stopped at convenient times. If you're going to Seattle or going to Glendive or Bismarck, and some stopped at really poor times, which meant that this building was open 24 hours a day. The ticket offices, the, the baggage and express offices, so that the main train eastbound in 1913 was the North Coast Limited. It was the premier train of the Northern Pacific and one of the best known trains of the Western United States. And it stopped here at 5.05 in the morning, if it was on time. Uh, the, another westbound train stopped here at just at midnight. So that was one aspect of living in what we now call flyover country, but back then it was uh, train through country. You had to, uh, uh, had to live with the times the railroad set based on terminal cities far, far away. Most of the major trains were named back then. Most Amtrak trains are named now. Most of the uh, major trains were named then. Some of the local trains had nicknames. Uh, but or just went by the number and I want to read some of the names of trains that stopped out there on the platform And of course the, the main one was the North Coast Limited for 71 years It was a major train between Seattle and St. Paul Minneapolis and Chicago under the Northern Pacific and for one year under Burlington Northern secondary trains on this on the run included the Alaskan named after a destination, uh, uh, destination that 
Northern Pacific Hope passengers would get as far as Seattle before they switched to ship on Northern Pacific trains. Another was called the Main Streeter, taken from uh, the Northern Pacific's late motto, Main Street of the Northwest. There was Yellowstone Park Comet, the Puget Sound Limited, the Mississippi Valley Limited. And so those were some of the trains that stopped out here in front on through runs. But the, it also hosted, this station hosted shorter trains of the Northern Pacific, a local train going to Red Lodge. And probably the, the smallest, most uh, insignificant train was a mixed train, passenger, one probably a pa freight train with one passenger car that ran out to Shepherd, all of 14 miles. Um, and this, this was still running in 1923. It actually ran out once in the morning and came back and then ran out once in the afternoon and came back. So you could climb off the North Coast Limited, you could go from Seattle to Shepherd, Montana with one change of trains here. The Great Northern, which came in from Great Falls, uh, from the uh, Northeast, ran the Great, North, Great Northern Express and Southeast Express. And these connected with the Burlington here, and passengers could continue from Great Falls to Lincoln, Nebraska, or Kansas City. The Burlington, which reached here both from uh, Omaha and Denver, had trains of uh, less conventional, or uh, less exciting names. One of the trains on the Omaha run was called the Adventure Land. Another was called the Vacation Special. And the Burlington actually ran for about half a decade a train called the General Custer. And a train, the train to uh, uh, Denver, which often was unnamed, I'll, I'll, I'll come back to that later, was, uh, for a while was called the Shoshone as well. But so there were the scheduled trains out of here, up to 20 a day, probably in the 19-teens into the early 20s. But there were other trains as well. There were special charter trains running to special events um, that uh, railroads would run on behalf of certain groups, certain organizations, or for distant events. In the fall of 1925, the, the, the Interscholastic High School Championship for football in the state the final championship game was going to be between Billings and Great Falls, and it was going to be played in Butte, presumably at Clark's, uh, the stadium in Clark Park, the largest venue in the state for sports events. It's where the, the annual rivalry between the, the college in Missoula and the one in Bozeman happened for, for, for a quarter century in the first half of the century. So if you wanted, you were in Billings here, it's November 1925, you want to see your high school team take on Great Falls in, in Butte, you could, a special train left here at four in the morning, it would take eight hours to get to Butte, you'd get there about noon, you would watch the game, presumably in the early afternoon, and then some probably late afternoon, you'd have an eight hour trip back here. So 16 hours in the train to watch a game perhaps of three hours, but they, and, the ride back may depend, uh, the, and for those people that did the trip, they made all that to see a tie game, 27 to 27. <laughs> the other thing that happened at this station and many other urban stations was exhibition trains. Sometimes they were, uh, throughout the state, in smaller stations, there were ag demonstration trains run in cooperation with Montana State College. Uh, but what happened here uh, are, were two exhibition trains. So I'm going to ask, we've, you've already been asked if you took a train out of here. Did, is anybody in the audience here 
was they here in 1964 to see the Montana Territorial Centennial train. Okay, <laughs> looks like about three or four over there. Okay, so in 1964, the state government and businesses and organizations put together a 25-car train to commemorate the centennial of Montana's Territorial's creation. And the goal of it was to go to the World's Fair in New York, in New York City, two years in New York City. But it was, it was put, pulled together here from spare railroad cars. They actually bought eight cars from the West Virginia statehood centennial train the previous year. And um, it, it included displays, it included people traveling with it, it included horses and wagons. They put, when it stopped on its way across the country, they participated in parades, but it left here, once it had toured, done a short tour of the state, it left from here in early April 1964 and headed on the Burlington towards Omaha. So how many people in here saw the American Freedom Train when it was here in 1975? About the same number, about four or five. The American Freedom Train was a privately sponsored and organized train uh, that uh, started, it, was, it ran two years, 1975, 1970, 1976. 1976, it, included, it was pulled by steam locomotives most of the way, not through Billings, the steam engine broke down. Uh, and it carried all sorts of exhibits about the uh, Declaration of Independence, the Revolutionary War, other foundations of government. And it traveled around the country. The only stop it made in Montana was here in Billings, uh, the 10th through the 13th of October, 1975. And at that time, it was being pulled by diesels because of uh, engine failures with the steam. So those are the various types of trains that stopped here. Scheduled, chartered, exhibition trains. There was something, another function, well, one, you could bring stuff down here to ship, just like you would uh, do it by UPS or uh, FedEx now. But the other thing you could do is all these, uh, the scheduled trains carried mail, or almost all of them carried mail. Not only did they carry mail, they carried a post office. Near the front of the train was a, a, a railway post office car that had a full working post office in it with postal employees carrying sidearms because a lot of money traveled by there. Had pigeonholes where mail was sorted. It could pick up mail where it didn't stop by a hook that would come out of the side of the car and snag mail bags held up on a crane. But in a town like uh, Bozeman, of course, it stopped. And if you, in 1925, if you wanted to send a letter west and you wanted to, to get immediately in the mail, and you knew that the North Coast Limited left here at a certain time, we'll say 4 p.m., you could walk down here at 3.55, there'd be the train out there, you'd go out on the platform, you'd walk up to the mail car, and there'd be a little letter slot, you'd lift the cover, drop your letter in there, and the mail slot would fall down. That letter would be camped, the postal workers would, just like a post office, they'd cancel that letter, kill the stamp, and then they'd sort it into the proper bag. Was it getting off in Spokane or Ellensburg or Seattle? And was it, if it was going on Seattle, it might be in another bag. And you knew that 10 minutes later, your letter was on the way there. It probably got to Seattle just as fast as if it had been flown to Great Falls, gone through an, a data scanning machine, been flown to somewhere else and picked up. So that, uh, and that system lasted in until 1967, 
for at least for someone of my age, that's not that long ago. Uh, and then uh, the post office literally pulled most of the mail off the passenger trains, and it turned out that's what was keeping most of those trains going was mail contracts and would bring an end. But that. That letter that was mailed on this North Coast Limited out here would have a circular cancellation, just like a regular post office but, uh, stamp. But it would, say, it would have in it, it would say, Miles C and Seat, RPO. Miles City and Seattle, RPO. And then have the train number and the date. So when I look at postcards and use uh, antique shops, I look for RPO cancellations on the back. So those were the passenger trains and what they carried. There were freight trains, obviously, going past here just as there are now. And one can look at the, uh, the freight trains, and a lot of them were parked on sidings today because of the train wreck outside of near Columbus. And you can see the economy of this part of the West. There are trains, you can see the coal sticking just over the top of open hoppers. There are the covered hoppers that carry grain. There are the tank cars that are probably carrying Bakken oil from, from uh, eastern Montana to the Puget Sound refineries. You see lumber headed eastbound with those uh, white fi uh, fiber uh, coverings. That's actually probably mostly Canadian lumber. Uh, you see, uh, and you see containers, you see the, the, the rail cars that carry automobiles, the big, tall, streamlined looking cars. And, but earlier, of course, as you were waiting for your train here in 1920 or 1950, you would see the freight traffic then and, uh, and what it was carrying and the special trains. Back then, the, a lot of perishable food was carried by trains and you had fruit specials coming from central Washington or western Montana, you had berry specials and cherry specials coming from western Montana, stock specials with slatted sides with, with sheep or uh, cattle in them. Uh, the Great Northern ran a train into Laurel from Great Falls called the Texas, not for where it went, but for the where the, it would go with it through its connection with the Burlington. And so watching those freight trains, just like we can here, was uh, part of this. The other thing you would see going through here, and probably stopping uh, very quickly, were the silk trains. These were trains of mostly express cars, carrying bales, 100 pound, bales of uh, several hundred pounds, uh, of silk that had been brought across the Pacific by ship, taken to a pier in Seattle, loaded onto the, uh, these express cars, and then travel eastward at speeds even faster than the passenger trains. Apparently, the insurance costs for this silk and shipment were, it, the, the rates were hourly. And the fewer hours it took to get to Patterson, New Jersey, the less they paid for insurance. And so these trains had priority and uh, with when, when they went through smaller towns, people actually came out to watch them. The, tele, the, the station operator would know that a silk train and the word was coming and the word would go out. And so perhaps people came to, down here to watch that silk train go through. They were the glamour train, even more than passenger trains, of especially the 19-teens and the 1920s. So that this all had to end, or it didn't have to end, but it did. 
competing modes of transportation, the way the government either regulated or subsidized or some combination of both of those other modes of transportation, built public highways, create, uh, uh, moved mail to air mail, uh, uh, paying over cost for that, and the railways declined. Uh, the passenger trains almost, well, it did disappear from, on, uh, from, from Billings. Uh, and the last scheduled passenger train through here, uh, Amtrak's North Coast Hiawatha, went through here 10 days short of 39 years ago. And since then, there's, there have been special trains, there have been corporate executive trains, and more, but uh, no, no scheduled service. And not only the last chapter of the book is a lament, and maybe it's a rant, about the loss of public transportation, ground public transportation, to much of Montana and the West. Um, as the rail service disappeared, and more recently, even the bus companies are pulling out. Canada, the Canadian West, Greyhound pulled out of all of Western Canada, or will do so very soon. That hundreds of towns, including towns of 15, 20,000, will have no public transportation whatsoever. And that's happening partly in Montana as well. And so uh, it's something that people, obviously people are aware of, and, uh, but solutions or who's going to pay for the solutions uh, remain disputed. This is from uh, uh, writing by Mary Clearman Blue, one of the well-known Montana writers, but this is from a biography of her aunt, who was a teacher, school teacher. And at the time of this, this story, 1943, she was teaching in a school, just a town just south of Olympia, Washington, but she's gonna come back to her family farm in Danvers, northwest of Lewistown. And this is what Blue writes about her trip home. It's 1943, during the Second World War. Another sign of the times. On the one hand, she can't drive back to Montana in her car because gasoline is being rationed and she doesn't have enough gasoline coupons. On the other hand, the public transportation available to her in the 1940s is enviable. She can get anywhere in the Pacific Northwest by train or bus, even to places like Danvers, Montana, which has only a general store, a saloon, and a couple of grain elevators in addition to its train station and it was a staffed train station as well. So I want to finish. I've covered the North Coast Limited, but I haven't gotten to the Nightcrawler yet, and so I'm, I'll finish with that. The Nightcrawler was a local uh, vernacular or a nickname for the train that the Burlington ran between here and Denver. Uh, again, through Thermopolis, Casper, Cheyenne, Fort Collins, and Boulder. Uh, it was. Uh, by the 1960s, it was largely a mail train, mail and express train, uh, but it, it, it lasted until it lost its mail contract in 1967. But by the, uh, through the late 50s, early 60s, it generally in and out of Billings, it was a three-car train, a single diesel locomotive, a baggage express car, a railway post office car, and a coach for, for the train riders. And so I want you to imagine that that train southbound left here about 1.30 in the afternoon, hit Casper about 9 o'clock at night. It had a long stop at Casper to unload and load and unload mail. And then it left Casper close to 10 o'clock. And through the late evening into the very early morning, it traveled through very 
remote areas of Wyoming, eventually coming into Casper and heading towards Denver. So imagine this dark scene, no, almost no human-caused light, and this train approach. First the headlight, then the, you see the, uh, you don't see the actual cars. What you see is the lit windows on the cars. First you see four round porthole-like windows on the diesel locomotive that's pulling the train. Uh, and then there's uh, little windows in the doors of the baggage car. And then the four, wind, three or four windows of the railway post office where the crew is working full tilt are brightly lit. And then the coach with uh, windows that the lights are dimmed, but there has to be some light so people can move around the car. And you see that 300, more than 300 foot long transportation moving across the landscape, that string of lights. And that passed uh, as it approached uh, Cheyenne from the north. It passed the ranch where uh, a, a woman and a, a memoirist named Teresa Jordan grew up. She was born there in the mid-1950s. And she writes about what that train meant to her mother with its regularity every or very early every morning in her, uh, uh, her memoir, Riding the White Horse Home. Then, when I was born, I was not the easy, happy baby that my brother had been. I was colicky. After my 2 a.m. feeding, I would cry inconsolably for hours. She would walk me and walk me, and when she was so tired she couldn't walk anymore, she would set me back in my crib and close the door, go downstairs, and have a cup of coffee before she would walk me some more. The railroad ran a quarter mile in front of our house and a train passed by every morning at three. There was no crossing. The tracks ran parallel to the road. But when the light shone in the kitchen, the engineer would sound his whistle. I think of my mother sitting by at the table, drinking coffee and smoking cigarettes, 50 miles from town and two miles from a neighbor, alone in the center of the night, listening to that blue whistle blow.